Okay? Let's go ahead and get started today with a word of prayer. Lord God, the knowledge of how well you know us, all of our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, um, it's too incredible for us to understand. Lord, your word says it's too wonderful for us. It's unattainable. Lord, you are the author that not only understands, but also writes the entire story. In your book, Lord, you wrote every one of our days before we took our first breath. Many of those days, Lord, are filled with tears. But what, what is it that your word tells us? Lord, it says, he who goes out weeping, bearing, sheave, uh, bearing seeds for sowing, will come, out, uh, come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. But God, we cannot sustain ourselves when our hearts are filled with sadness. It's hard to keep doing what you've called us to keep doing when our world is crumbling around us. We rely on you <clears throat> instead then, Lord. And so... We can sing the song of your people, although we are weeping, Lord, help us keep sowing the seeds of your kingdom for the day you will reap them. Your sheaves we will carry, Lord, please do not tarry. All those who sow weeping will go out with songs of joy. So Lord, today we ask that you would turn our tears into songs that sing of your faithfulness. So the world will see how great you are, God, and will say with us, he has done great things. It's for the sake of your name that we pray these things, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Today we're going to be talking about finding the peace of God in our lives. We'll see that Paul points us to three disciplines that are important to learning to have this peace. And so today those disciplines will be the strategies we're going to talk about for connecting with the God of Isaiah 43.2, who walks with us in the fires and floods of our lives. So in a nutshell, Paul calls us to deeply think about the right things, uh, about the truths of God. He calls us to live always in a state of thankfulness, and he calls us to reorder our loves so that God is first. Thinking about those disciplines... Um, I want to think practically for a minute. I believe one of the greatest ways to prepare your heart for prayer is to write down your prayers to God. It's a great deliberate exercise that really causes you to think more deeply about what you pray. It allows you to take the time to get your heart and your mind filled with Scripture. And uh, when we look to God's Word, He tells us what to pray for. He reminds us of His truth. He gives us hope. He shows us that he's faithful. He shines light on the darkest, most hidden places in our hearts. And when these things are already in front of us, when we approach the throne of God, I believe it can give us more confidence in knowing how to praise God, what to confess, what to ask for. There's nothing wrong with actually writing down and reading your prayers to God or or simply praying scripture directly to God. I think rather than being robotic or formulaic, it actually helps you learn to pray better. And learn to pray better when you haven't written your prayers. (laughs) It keeps you focused as you pray. It gives you prayers that may be worth praying again and again. Not because they have lofty language, but because they're filled with truth 
and beautiful reminders of what God has done, where our hope lies, and who the object of our affection is. Now, my opening prayer this morning was clearly one that I thought about and wrote down beforehand. I'm not going to speak like that if I haven't thought about it, read scripture, and written it down. Um, It wasn't so it would have the perfect language or sound just right, but I was thinking as I prepared to pray this morning a couple of questions. I thought, what does God's word say about the purpose of our suffering, and how can it be a daily encouragement to us? So I looked to the Psalms. Um, I'm sure you're surprised. (laughs) I will not quit harping on the idea that the Psalms are a daily guide for us. So let them guide and inform your prayers. I look specifically at Psalm 139. It's a beautiful song that reminds us how intimately God knows us, how he saw our unformed substance and knit us together with his own hands, how he has written the story of our lives. And one of my absolute favorites I looked at as well was a song of ascent. It's Psalm 126, which beautifully depicts what happens with the tears of the righteous. When God's people weep, but they continue trusting God and doing the things, uh, doing the good works that he has prepared for them, what is their ultimate destination? It's restoration. We're not just stuck in our tears, stuck in our weeping, but we know there's restoration. It says that their mouths will be filled with laughter and their tongues with shouts of joy. Um, the psalm goes on to tell us that the ultimate purpose of the restoration or what the ultimate purpose is of the restoration of our fortunes by God as well. It is so that the nations will see and declare that the Lord has done great things for us. God fills our broken hearts with laughter so that the world will be drawn to him and worship him. Is that not an incredible picture and one that we can have hope in? Isn't it better to be part of such a grand story than just to believe that I'm alone and without purpose as I suffer? To know that my tears have to do with something bigger than just me. So when you take the time to look at scripture, to see the part that we play in God's story, not just in our own. And perhaps even write down your thoughts in a prayer to God, whether or not you actually read it as you pray. I think it will be a real benefit to you in your prayer life. And that's just one small way that we can be deliberate and think about the things uh, that God wants us to. Um, and be reminded of why we're thankful and why we should love God above all else. So today we're actually going to talk about experiencing the peace of God. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to look at Paul. Let's look at his suffering. Because he seemed in his suffering to have an incredible peace. The kind of peace that perhaps we don't know very often in our lives. Um, I'd say that if we took the time to make a list of some of the most prominent sufferers in the Bible, who do you think of? We've got Job, certainly. We have Jesus. I would say, anyone else? Sure. Well, Naomi, yes. Um, Yes, yes, absolutely. So we're... We're going to look at Paul because Paul, I think, on a physical scale, may be one of the worst sufferers in in all of Scripture. Um, Not only that, on an emotional scale, 
Um, in every way, practically, Paul suffered. And when Paul was called to the ministry, God said of him in Acts 9, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You don't want to be that guy. (laughs) So not long afterward, we hear Paul preaching that it is only through many tribulations that we may enter the kingdom of God. Darn it, it's not just Paul. It's it's apparently all of us. Um, Six times in Paul's letter, to the Roman or letters to the Roman and Corinthian churches, he catalogs his afflictions, um, and I've listed the uh, the sections there. We're not going to read all of them; it would take take too long. Um, but I, I encourage you to go through those yourselves. Um, if I were to do that, if I were to sit down and just write out to to a group of people, uh, and I'm going off the cuff here, but, uh, to a group of people, um, here's all the ways that I've suffered. Wouldn't that seem a little funny? It's like, look at me, look at how I've suffered. Look, look at all the bad things that have happened to me. It feels like I'm pointing to myself. But Paul amazingly can get by with it. The, uh, the absolute faithfulness he's shown and, and the fact that he's using it only for the sake of teaching. Um, he seems to have no, no pride in his suffering. His suffering, uh, although it, he would even say it's greater than anyone else's. Um, is only for the purpose that Christ has given him. And, uh, yeah, I, I just don't think many people could get by with, with spending all of this effort and time over and over again saying, look at all the ways I've suffered. Look at, at all this. Because he's never saying, look at me. He's saying, look to what Christ has done in me. Now, Keller says, put together all of these catalogs of suffering. They cover an enormous range of physical, emotional, and spiritual hardships, including hunger, imprisonment, and betrayals. Really, that doesn't even begin to cover it. Let's look at at a little bit of what Paul has to say. Um, An old Roman tradition said that 40 lashes was a death sentence. And we're dealing with not just a whip. We're dealing usually with a cat of nine tails, a whip with bone and, and metal in the tips. So it literally rips the flesh off of your back. Um... Five times, or, or this, the, the, the reason it was a death sentence is because it had to do with the amount of blood loss, but also the likelihood of infection. Because you're that opened up to, to the elements. You're going to get things inside of you. Um, they would even sometimes dip the, the whip in goat's blood, um, almost ensuring infection. Now, five times at the hands of the Jews, his own people, Paul was given the incredibly brutal punishment of flogging. Does anyone know what flogging is specifically? Okay, flogging is basically 40 lashes because they call it 40 lashes minus one. So he was given a death sentence, but just not quite. Five times he took those 39 lashes. Um, so he, in all, he took 195 lashes for the sake of Jesus' name. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger uh, from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure and apart from other things. And I love this. There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Somehow he has anxiety for churches in the midst of his suffering. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? So we get a, that's, that's one of the best pictures I think of to help us understand what Paul's life was really like. Constant danger, constant turmoil, constant toil, constant um, lack of what he needed physically, uh, constant uh, just people coming against him, but also constant uh, thinking and worrying for the churches, what is going on there, uh, how, how they are or are not following Christ properly. So knowing all that we know about the suffering of Paul, is he someone who should have had peace? Really think about that. Should he have any reason for peace in his life? The struggles and afflictions that Paul faced are really the kind of peace-robbing things that leave a person helpless and devastated. If I ever knew someone in my life who had dealt with all those things, I would 100% say, no, they don't have peace in their lives. Paul described a specific recent trial of his in 2 Corinthians 1, as a great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Seeing Paul's suffering, I think we'd have to say that because his troubles were far beyond his ability to endure, then if there is any way that he had peace in his life, it was some special kind of peace that is far beyond our ability to understand. So let me... Let me say that a simpler way. Troubles that are far beyond our ability to endure require a peace that is far beyond our ability to comprehend. So what is this peace? What is the peace of God? I've broken it down into three things that we can learn to do here uh, to understand the peace of God. And this is based, uh, again, on what Paul says about this peace that he has. So we see later in the same passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us why he and those that were with him were allowed to suffer far beyond their ability to endure. This is on your paper there. It says, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is the peace of God. It's a peace that passes all human understanding because... We're not relying on human understanding. When, when we rely on our own understanding to deal with our own problems, there's, there's n- just nothing there to help us sometimes deal with a problem because as Paul says, it's far beyond our ability to endure. So if it is beyond my ability to endure, is there anything I can think of that's going to help me endure? There's nothing that, that's inside of me personally that can do it. Paul says that we're relying on God himself. 
and this is interesting. What does he choose to say about God in this short passage? What does he say there in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9? Rely on ourselves, not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's the one thing he chooses to say about God here. <clears throat> God is the one that raises the dead. Think about that. He raises the dead. It's not a small thing. He has the power over life and death itself. So if I rely on anyone, why not this God? The peace of God is a peace that makes no sense at all to the world because the world doesn't understand resurrection. It's a peace that is only found when our trust in God is not changed by our circumstance. This is the peace that remembers that Jesus was raised by this God and it remembers that I will be too. Remind yourself of this. This is the God who raises the dead. This is not hyperbole. This is flesh and bone fact. Resurrection is real. And if you want peace, you better learn to cling to it. Sometimes that's all we have to cling to. So the first is to learn to rely on the God who raises the dead. The second of these things Paul says is to learn to rely on the God who comforts us in all our troubles. And I actually put two and three together here because they are so intertwined. We learn to rely on the God who comforts us. We also learn to comfort others when they are troubled. It's a significant part of learning to have peace in the midst of our troubles. So Paul goes on to observe that God comforts us in all our, in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I think a little bit simpler translation says, He comforts us in all our troubles so we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So what we learn from this statement, I think, is that if we want to understand how Paul found peace and faced adversity, we just have to look at how Paul comforts others, right? Luckily, Paul's comfort he has received from God, he offers to others in his letters. So we have clear pictures of exactly what this looks like. Um, I'm going to read Philippians 4, 4 through 12. And I think this passage will will, uh, tell us a lot about this. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. You see here he's pointing to. He can catalog these things. He can talk about these things because he's trying to teach you what God has taught him. He's not simply trying to puff himself up or have pride somehow in how much he suffered. So back to the scripture. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. 
practice these things. And here it comes again. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This passage is packed with meaning. (laughs) First of all, let's look at what Paul says the peace of God is. Um, Let's try to make it as simple as possible. According to Paul, the peace of God is an inner calm and equilibrium. That sounds very kind of new agey, kind of, let's just, let's have an inner calm and equilibrium. But Paul says, I have learned how to be content in whatever circumstance. The secret of being content in every situation. He says he is the same in one situation as in another. So think about Paul's troubles. That is a very strong statement. And if Paul's being honest about this, then this piece is far stronger than you and I could begin to imagine or hope for in our lives. But he says it's something that we can have too. This isn't just something about his personality. He's not just that kind of guy who can deal with stuff or who is good at pushing it off, not worrying about it. Um, I wouldn't say he's that at all. But he says this is a learned inner calm and equilibrium. Now, secondly, Paul tells us it's not just an absence, but a presence. It's not just an absence of fear, but it's a presence or a sense of being protected. Verse 7 says, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Have you ever really thought about what that means? I think a better translation of the Greek word for guard used here would say that the peace of God will completely surround and fortify your hearts and minds. It, think of the picture of being protected. You're, you're in a tent and you have an army all around you there for your protection so that you can sleep at night. So you know no one's going to attack me because I'm in my safe space. <laughs> <Not gonna, laughs> just kidding. Because <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm in a place of safety. I'm in a place of protection where uh, I have nothing to worry about because I know that I'm guarded and fortified Keller says that Christian peace does not start with the ousting of negative thinking. Here's where we see Christianity breaking with the world. It doesn't start with the ousting of negative thinking. If you do that, you may be, you may simply be refusing to face how bad things are. That's one way to calm yourself. You can find calm by reducing the negative thinking, um, by refusing to admit the facts, but it will be a short lived peace. Christian peace doesn't start that way. It's not that you stop facing the facts, but you get a living power that comes into your life and enables you to face those realities, something that lifts you up over and through them. He goes on to say, people usually break through to this kind of peace only in tragic situations, often in the valley of the shadow of death. So we've seen that Paul is beaten, he's stoned, he's flogged, he's shipwrecked, he is betrayed. His enemies are trying to kill him. There is wave after wave, and yet there he is still. I have found a way to be completely poised under any circumstances, he said. All the waves of life could not break him. And he says it isn't a natural talent of his, 
that you and I can learn this. Keller gives a picture in, in the book uh, of when you see a gigantic wave. Um, you're at the beach, there's a huge rock. A gigantic wave comes, completely covers over the rock. Is the rock harmed by it? I mean, is the rock moved by it? That wave comes and it beats a thousand times, a million times. Yes, there's, there's some erosion over time, but, but every time it, it breaks, you see the rock standing still. That's the idea of what we see with Paul here. Wave after wave of affliction and trouble comes his way, and yet he stands on a rock that keeps him safe. So this section of Paul's letter begins to do what he talks about in 2 Corinthians 1.4. Uh, Because God has comforted Paul, he is made able to comfort others. And so he's seeking to do that here. Now, he could simply say nice things about God, how great he is. And he could encourage people by saying, yes, God is near and he comforted me. And that's kind of an encouragement to say, yeah, God's done this for me. But, But Paul goes so much further here. He begins to talk about the disciplines of learning to have peace and comfort. Not just waiting and hoping that God will comfort you, but how do we move into the comfort and the peace of God? He guides the Philippians in what they should think about. He reminds them they should practice thankfulness always. And he helps them see that our love of God must be above all other loves, above things and people. That we must reorder our loves and make God the greatest object of our affection. So as we've discussed for weeks now, what Paul is doing is saying this. Practice walking. Do the things in your affliction that you do when circumstances are good. Again, to connect with God in the furnace of our suffering, we must keep walking in these disciplines. It's hard. And it's not a magic formula for inner peace. Don't hear me wrong at all. There is no magic formula to make sure that we have some perfect inner peace. It's not four steps to, you know, to finding God's peace. But he does say, practically speaking, There are disciplines we do that move us in the direction that God wants us to be. Moves us to stop ignoring the peace of God and to start seeing what is there for us. So this is how we remind ourselves that God is near and practically speaking. Uh, we're, We're more likely to experience his comfort and peace when we do these things than when we don't. So what are these three disciplines? I've listed them several times. The first is simple. It's just the discipline of thinking. Philippians 4, 8, and 9, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So think about these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He's pretty clear about that. That's not not just Keller's made-up idea. So if you were to look in a bookstore or go on Amazon and, and find books that help you deal with anxiety, worry, and stress, what would those books teach, you think? Any thoughts? Maybe you've read some and that's okay. <laughs> Maybe none of you are stressed and that's great. <laughs> so I think the average book that helps you deal with anxiety and stress um, We'll tell you to, kind of as I've already said, remove the negative thoughts, get away, go somewhere where the the bad stuff can't reach you, Um, get rid of people in your life that 
that are uh, weighing you down, um, exercise more. Um, let me think. Uh, Focus on you, sure, absolutely. Be positive. Yeah, not only don't be negative, but be positive. Uh, Perhaps kind of ways to control your thoughts so that you don't think negatively. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they tell you think positive things, but they don't define the positive things for us. Like what is positive? <laughs> um, you're absolutely right. So th- they, they might talk about work-rest balance. That's a good thing, right? Or escapism. It's escapism, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and it's escapism because, as, as you said, there's no, no basis, no foundation for, for what you're doing. Um, there are times that it's good and right to be away. Jesus certainly regularly went away from all the troubles of daily life. I think that's an important thing to know about Jesus' personality. He thought it was extremely important to have solitude. He wanted to be alone with his father. But again, what is he doing? He's not getting away from his troubles. He's going to deal with his troubles directly with God. Um, so, you know, they, they, these books might tell you to go on vacation or put some distance between you and your problems, not think about anything pressing or anything deep for a while, put it on hold. Just put it on the back burner. We'll deal with it later. That'll allow you to get that calm, that inner peace for right now. You know, deals with thought control techniques, um, dealing with not having thoughts of guilt. Um, As you said, some of these things are actually perfectly fine things. It's helpful to have some time away. It's good to be deliberate about the balance in your life of what you do. God did design us to rest, after all. Exercise is good. But these are not the things that Paul tells us to do to find peace when things aren't going well. In fact, he really flips this line of thinking on its head, as the Bible almost always does, it seems, with the thinking of the world. Instead of thinking less about your problems, he says we should think more about things and think more deeply. The world would tell us just to relax and find experiences that bring us pleasure Ignoring the big questions as often as we can. Um, But Paul wants us to think about the big issues of life and to do it every single day. Paul would say that we find whatever is true, noble, right, and pure in God's word. He's not just recommending we think inspirational thoughts in general. He's not saying, oh, these things are good and true and right and pure. Think about these things. He's saying, think about these things. They're right here for you in God's word. He's pointing us to the specific teaching of the Bible about God, about sin, about Christ, about salvation, uh, the world, human nature, about God's plans for the world. He's saying that if we want peace, we should think hard and long about the doctrines of the Bible. And that will in turn help us deal directly with our troubles instead of avoiding them. So Paul gives an example of this in Romans 818 when he says i reckon that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed in us now to reckon according to keller here is to count up accurately it's really an accounting term not to whistle in the dark it's not to get peace by jogging or shopping it means think it out 
take the time to really count it up to understand what we're looking at. Think about the glory coming until the joy breaks and begins to break in you. He goes on to say, Paul is saying that if you're a Christian, you can think about the big picture. And as you do, you are going to find peace. And if you are a Christian and you have no peace at all, it may be that you are simply not thinking. So because we have a basis, we have a a foundation in truth and Christianity, we are freed up to be able to think about the big picture. We're freed up to not have to just think about ourselves and our circumstance because our circumstance is part of a greater story. So it gives us that freedom to say, well, this is about more than just this moment, the way I feel right now. This is about God's ultimate plan and purpose for all of the world. And maybe that doesn't help everyone, but it sure helps me. So we've talked a little bit about thinking. Next, let's move on to talking about thanking, about being thankful. In Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So note here that Paul tells us we can be thankful to combat anxiety. That's very specifically what he's saying. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, first we have to look at the seeming counterintuitive nature of the thankfulness that Paul is calling us to. I think I can show how seemingly strange this is uh, this way. If I'm about to take a week off of work, uh, I have certain jobs that can't sit undone until I get back. So what do I do? I usually send a note to a couple of different people, an email or a text, uh, requesting that they take care of those tasks while I'm gone. And since I trust these people, since I'm sure they will do just what I've asked, I'll usually say something like, thanks in advance in my note. Um, that makes sense, right? When you know somebody's going to respond a certain way, you can easily thank them in advance. I have a reasonable expectation that they will do what I've asked. I would be shocked if they didn't. So it's almost as if it's already done. But with God, things are different. (laughs) We make our request known to him with no expectation of exactly how God will respond. But Paul calls us to thank him as we make our requests. That's counterintuitive for sure. How often in life do you ask someone for something and you really have no idea how they're going to respond, but you say, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for however you respond. It's rare that we actually think that way. So again, it's counterintuitive to thank God for something we've requested when we don't know how he will respond. But if we think about it, again, we have to think about it. Paul calls us to. We can see what he's getting at. Paul is essentially calling on us to trust God's sovereign rule of history and of our lives. He's telling us that we will never be content unless, as we make our heartfelt request, we also acknowledge that our lives are in his hands and that he is wiser than we are. That is what you are doing when you thank him for whatever he is going to do with your request. So the idea is that when we're able to trust that God is actually in control, that we are actually in his hands, and that he will answer our prayers the way that we would if we knew everything that he does, then 
that can certainly remove anxiety from our lives. Because you're actually thankful for whatever he does. If you can actually not worry about what the response is going to be, doesn't that remove a lot of anxiety? Genesis 50, 20 says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And, and Paul says in Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together for good for those who love God. Now, these verses don't say that every bad thing has a silver lining. Not at all. You hear that. People say, that's okay. I'm going to find the silver lining in this bad thing. It's a very, very worldly concept, really. Um, it doesn't say that, they don't say that every terrible thing is somehow actually a good thing if you learn to look at it properly. With God, bad things are bad things. We don't need to sugarcoat them or say that when something terrifically tragic happens, that it is a good thing. Um, let's look at that further, though. What do I mean? Paul says that all things, even bad things, will ultimately together be overruled by God in such a way that the intended evil will in the end, not now, but in the end, only accomplish the opposite of its designs. A greater good and glory than would otherwise have come to pass. God has a unique vantage point to see all things working together for our good and his glory. And the cool thing is this. One day, we too will see the big picture more clearly. But we don't see it now and we don't have to. Um, Again, bad things are bad. Terrible things are terrible. There's not always something specific that we can say because this bad thing happened oh good here's the silver lining that makes it okay it's not okay and god doesn't say that the the bad things are okay but what he does say is in his incredible mysterious sovereign power he works all things together it says he overrules the evil so that ultimately it will have exactly the opposite of its intended purpose that's hard to grasp and i don't think we can fully grasp because again our vantage point is too low we don't see it from where God sees it. Let's talk quickly about the, uh, the discipline of reordering our loves. This is one that really, I think, could take a whole week or two. Um, so we're not going to get as deeply as I'd like to into it. But um, let, let's say what we can. In Philippians 4.8, Paul says to think first of whatever is true, noble, right, and pure. So these are more traditional theological virtues uh, that have to do with the mind and the will. But then what does he do? He moves on and asks them to ponder whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. When we think about the word lovely, we think of something that's not just true, but it's also attractive, right? Here it seems that Paul's urging his readers not just to order the thoughts of their mind, but to engage the affections of their heart. Keller says that, Paul says that in those times, it's not enough just to think the right things. It's also important to love the right things. It's not just a, a head exercise. It's a heart exercise as well. The Stoics taught that the reason that most people are, aren't able to live lives of contentment is that they love the things and people related to their circumstances uh, too much. They said there are problems come when you love things that are not in, uh, you are not in control of. So if you love something and something happens to it, you're lost, right? They said we should not truly love anything but our own virtue. That's the way to deal with it. 
Since we can lose the things we love, we shouldn't really love anything. All we can love is our own character because they said that we had control over it. <clears throat> but your virtue can let you down just as much as anything. Um, and if you fail in your character, then you truly have nothing in this mindset. Plus, you don't have any real love in your life either. Um, on the flip side, Augustine said we should only love the immutable or the unchanging. He knew that God is the one thing that is unchanging, who he is, how he acts, how he loves. He said that the only love that won't disappoint you is the one that can't change, that can't be lost, that is not based on the ups and downs of life or how well that you live. Even death can't take it away from you. So does this mean that we can't love people or material comforts? Um, when he says that the only love we can have is that that's unchanging. Uh, that, that the only thing we can truly love is God. No, I don't think that's what he means. I think Augustine means, um, means this. Keller says this, and I think it, it, it describes what Augustine means. You must reorder your loves. Your problem is not so much that you love your career or family too much, but that you love God too little in proportion to them. Uh, I would say that Keller is... Perhaps kind of quoting C.S. Lewis here too. Lewis says in great book, The Four Loves, it is impossible to love any human being simply too much. We may love him too much in proportion to our love for God, but it is the smallness of our love for God, not the greatness of our love for the many that constitutes the inordinacy. Of course, I think Lewis is quoting Augustine. So (laughs) they're all plagiarizing. Um, So let me leave you with this today. Um, Making sure that our love for God is in the right place among our loves is certainly a way to experience the peace of God. When we learn to love God first, all of our other loves become better loves. And that's important to remember. When God is our first and only love, other loves pour out of that. uh, And they become the right kind of loves. Now, this doesn't even begin to do it justice, but... To learn to love God more, what do we do? (laughs) You must look to the person and work of Jesus at what he's done for you and uh, what he continues to do for you. That is how we begin uh, to to see God as being irresistibly beautiful. That's how he becomes the object of our affection. So every day, look to the beauty of Jesus. Look to the beauty of the work he has done for you. Look to the promise of what he's offered you for eternity. When we look to these things and they begin to um, affect the way that we think and feel about other people, that is loving God first. That is reordering God to be the first love. And again, it only comes by understanding and loving Jesus. All right, let me close quickly and we will head out. Lord God, I thank you that... uh, You have loved us so greatly. I thank you, Lord, that there is nothing that could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that we can learn to love like you. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to think deeply, that you would help us to be thankful, uh, not even knowing how you're going to respond to our requests, that you would help us to love you first and foremost, um, and that we would pour out that love on others 
the way we have been comforted, I pray we would comfort others. Um, this teaching of Paul is so rich. Uh, I pray that it would affect our hearts and affect the way that we act, the, the words that we speak, the way we treat our children and our spouses. I pray that it would affect our work. I pray that it would affect the way we are as a church and community. Lord, that we would encourage and build each other up. Um, and now I pray that as you lead us into worship, you would soften our hearts, that our minds would be clear, that we would hear your word for what it is, that your spirit would work in us, and that we would taste and see the goodness uh, that you have laid so um, so generously before us. And uh, we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Next week is the last week. If you are in town next week, please be here. We're going to kind of wrap up, do a little more question and answer, um, get any of your thoughts and, and things. So thank you, guys.